Bienvenidos al desvío. Encountering challenges, making decisions, confronting struggles, and understanding the reasons for different positions are but a part of being engaged in our community's ability to discuss and make advances toward a more inclusive and fair society. However, there is no set formula to achieve these objectives. In an era where so much misinformation thrives, como Latinos, tenemos que estar informados. We must be informed. El Desvío, Many Roads, One Destination, presents its listeners with 30 minutes of thought-provoking discussions on the relevant issues we face. Bienvenidos once again, mi gente. Today, we will be discussing the role Latino voters played in the 2022 midterm elections. The midterm elections gave Americans the opportunity to reshape Congress and determine the direction of the country for years to come. But it's important we unpack what happened last year. Today, we will hear from three Latinos making a difference. We'll first speak with Jesus Rubio, the Georgia State Director of Mi Familia Vota. He will help us understand how many Latinos came out to vote and how we can continue to ensure Latinos get out the vote in record-breaking numbers. Looking forward to 2024. We will then speak with Marisa Martinez, a state policy and politics reporter at Politico. She will help us get a better understanding of the results of the 2022 midterm elections. We will then hear from Maria Starr, a poll watcher and longtime LACLA leader who currently serves as president of the LACLA Greater Lansing, Michigan chapter. She will speak about her grassroots get out the vote campaigns and the role labor could play in elections. Jesus, thank you so much for joining us. We know that in 2022, for the first time in history, Latino voters became the largest voting bloc in the United States. We also know we're the fastest growing racial and ethnic group in the electorate. Can you tell us about the turnout rate for Latino voters nationally this past midterm election? How many Latino voters voted and how does that fit into the history of turnout for this country? Yeah, I think the statistics prove that the participation rate for Latino voter has been on the rise because demographics aren't always destiny, which I think that we've been able to correlate that a growth in the Latino sector doesn't always mean that Latino participation is hand in hand with that. So what we've been able to prove and debunk is that when we actually properly invest in Latino organizing, Latino communities show out and participate in our elections. In 2020, we saw massive Latino voter participation across all 50 states. We debunked kind of that myth from 2016 that Latinos did not properly participate in the elections with its population growth. And in 2022, we were able to bust that myth once again that Latinos don't participate in midterm elections. Here in the state of Georgia, we had a very crucial U.S. Senate race that went into a runoff election. Georgia is one of the few states in the country that has a law which forces a runoff election when a candidate does not reach the 50% plus one. We've had two back-to-back runoff elections for U.S. Senate seats, once in 2021 and once again this year, which essentially decided the balance of the United States Senate. So it had national implications and the Latino vote, it exceeded what we had. But again, it all comes down to investment. It all comes down to cultural competency. And it all comes down to making sure that the Latino voter is properly educated on the stances of both major political parties. Yeah, we definitely hear you, especially on the cultural competency note. We know that voter intimidation, misinformation, 
deterrence is on the rise across the country and is posing a huge threat to our community. We've seen that since 2016, a lot of important actors in this field are concerned that Latino voter rights could be suppressed. What can organizations like Mi Familia Vota and LACLA do to ensure that Latinos continue to get out the vote in record-breaking numbers? Yeah, absolutely. I think that we've done everything to try to get the message out, not just through traditional voter outreach methods like the doors, the phones, and the tax programs, but also utilizing our media outlets. We've seen a lot of media that's shared across social media outlets that is meant to disinform the Latino voter about voters not having their votes counted for or people being imprisoned if they are of Latino descent or a variety of different stories that have circulated widely, which I would consider a form of voter suppression, as well as widespread misinformation about voter fraud, which the courts have decided across most of our states that there was not widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. However, because of these because of these claims, a lot of state legislatures, including Georgia, have decided to limit uh, voter polls, have decided to limit the ability to, to vote through ballot, to vote through absentee voting, to early vote. So they've certainly reduced the methods of voting. And a lot of that has been mounted on claims that have not been uh, proven to be correct. So we certainly have to do everything that we can in utilizing our platforms to combat misinformation. Yeah, thank you for pointing out that feedback loop we see. Intimidation occur and then policies change that restrict voting, which intimidates voters more. And so it's really important that we, as organizations and as individuals also, do our best to put a stop to that. As the Georgia State Director of Mi Familia Vota, you helped build Latino political power through voter registration and education in a really key state. Can you tell us about the challenges you faced in your efforts in Georgia and how did you overcome them? Since 2020, you've seen record amounts of not just Latino voters, but Black voters, API voters came out in droves during the 2021 Georgia Senate runoffs. And as an immediate response, the Georgia State Legislature did everything in its power or to limit a variety of ways of voting and also to further shorten the window to register to vote before an election. The voter suppression bills are very strategic on how they try to limit voter participation, particularly for voters of color. If you go to a precinct that is mostly minority, you're going to experience longer wait times. You're going to experience not sufficient staffing to deliver fast-paced voter polls. The redistricting process, unfortunately, lessens the power of voters of color in which they are gerrymandered and the white voter has their vote taken into account significantly more and has a more decisive vote in a variety of races. We've had certainly to succumb to a lot of challenge. We've had to try to advocate on behalf of our community in the state legislature to try to combat a lot of these bills. But unfortunately, no matter how much condemnation occurs, a lot of these bills still go through. So Certainly, there was a lot of challenges to overcome, but the best that we can do once these bills are signed into law is to try to inform the public about changes in the law, the changes that occur from election cycle to election cycle, because what we've experienced here in Georgia is a completely different set of laws from which we had back in 2020. And a lot of folks may have had their the poll that they typically vote in, the precinct closed, 
Uh, maybe they have a shortened window to register to vote. Maybe they are no longer eligible to vote absentee. There's so many different changes that are consistently occurring and that we have to try our best to educate our public as well. I think a lot of that technical information and changes is really key to include in voter education campaigns. LACLA held out a Get Out the Vote campaign for the 2022 runoff election in Georgia. We targeted Latino voters in Gwinnett County that had voted in the 2021 runoff, but didn't in the general election in 2022. We thought that was an interesting pattern to see likely voters drop off. We're wondering if this is something that unions and organizations should keep in mind, especially looking forward to 2024. Yeah, I think that certainly there were many changes in the organizing style from 2020 to 2022. Uh, I'm somebody that spent most of his life here in the state of Georgia, grew up here, and to see it become the sort of battleground state is just as foreign to us as it's foreign to a lot of Americans. Seeing the level of investment and the level of interest in the state of Georgia and the way that Georgians vote has been a bit foreign. Millions of dollars are invested in ads, millions of dollars are invested in organizing and a variety of methods of outreach just to make sure that the average Georgian that's registered to vote participates and exercises that right. I think what occurred in 2020 was that a lot of national organizations came into the state of Georgia without necessarily too much of a knowledge of field and what areas to target and not necessarily following the lead of a lot of Georgia-based organizers, which created some sort of tensions, but also perhaps not as strategically of an organized core, particularly on the progressive side. Thankfully, we were able to pull some decisive victories in 2020. But I think that the organizing this election cycle was significantly more strategic. Certainly, you had a lot more partners on the ground to make sure that we could redirect a lot of national resources that were being spent here in the state of Georgia. And we already had a particular knowledge on how to prepare for a runoff scenario. We already knew what steps to take, which I don't think was necessarily the case last go around. I guess to answer your question, I think that the reason why sometimes you see a voter that may not necessarily participate in a general, but may participate in a runoff is because a lot of times during the runoff scenarios, we see all of the national resources being invested into the state of Georgia as we're the only state in the country that still was trying to decide a particular election. That level of national interest, that level of national coverage, there was a lot of noise, if you will, that was occurring during the general election, a lot of national narratives, a lot of different stories that were being followed from a national perspective. But once the dust settled on the November elections, Georgia was the only state that was still going up on a nationally watched race. And so I think some of that had to do with the level of participation and voters certainly keep up with the news. And once they know that this is a big deal and that Georgia, all eyes are on the state, then that's when they typically choose to participate. The more people knocking on your door, the more phone calls you receive. That definitely has an impact and I think speaks to the importance of investing in states, specifically states in the South, outside of runoff elections and outside of these elections that have high press coverage. So lastly, on a more personal level, as a young Latino voter, do you have a message for young Latino workers on the importance of elections? I think that the privilege of being able to vote is one that not many Latinos are able to exercise. When you are a citizen and you're able to vote, you're voting not only for yourself, but you're voting on behalf of the interests of the entire community. And we stand on the shoulders of many of our ancestors who would have wished to, or who currently wish to, to be able to vote. I know that 
that the young Latino tends to be more progressive and wants to enact changes that sometimes we don't see enacted by either party. And I think that the engagement doesn't end at the ballot box. It begins at the ballot box. We have to hold members of elected office accountable, regardless of which side of the aisle they sit on. And we need to bring that level of accountability to their offices, to the state capitals, to the United States Congress, uh, to make sure that they understand how they got to that office and that we elected them to enact the interests of the Latino community. Continue to educate yourself, continue to educate your community. A lot of times, particularly young Latinos are the ones that educate their parents or their grandparents or their young siblings about the democratic system that we have. A lot of people come to the United States at an older age and don't necessarily understand what each political party represents or how our Congress is distributed or how we elect the president. All of those things are incredibly important for us to educate our families and our communities about. My only message would be to understand the power that we each carry and to continue to educate our communities. Thank you. Thank you. So far, we've been talking about how many Latinos voted in the 2022 midterm elections, but we haven't discussed how Latinos voted yet. In the aftermath of the 2022 midterm elections, we've heard Democrats say Latinos helped fight back against the expected red wave. This is refuting the dominant narrative that Latinos are becoming more conservative, an idea that's become more popular the past few years. Republicans, on the other hand, have argued they at least maintained the gains they made with Latinos in 2020, despite not receiving the landslide when they'd hoped. Marisa Martinez, state policy and politics reporter at Politico, is here to help us understand this. Can you tell us how Latinos voted in the 2022 midterm elections? What are some patterns you noticed across the country? Latinos voted still primarily with the Democrats, and so that was something that was seen in most polling fitting into the midterms. Hispanics were the second biggest shift of all voters of color more broadly, so the Democrats' margins with them dropped nine points. It's the last one turns like over 2018, and then it decreased by five points compared to 2020. So these are marginal shifts away from the Democratic Party towards either independent voters or Republicans. I think that the main issue here is that a lot of this analysis of Latino voting behavior is still in more broad terms across the country, whereas, as we know, particularly Latinos, though, it's like, People from New York, Florida, Chicago, California, Texas are all very different. I think heading into the presidential elections, it's really important to start honing in on these regional differences between Latino who lives in Arizona versus Wyoming versus Ohio. They're all going to vote differently and based on different values, I think, in a way that we're not quite seeing perhaps with Black voters or with Asian voters, for instance. Why do you think that's the case that we're seeing these kind of small shifts? in different states and on the national level. A lot of people are attributing it to different things, I think, depending on which side you're on, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, I think they're interpreting these results really differently. For Democrats, a lot of people are seeing this as a win, that Latinos didn't stray away from their party as much as they could have done. You'll have people looking at Senator Cortez Masto's win as an example of the Latino vote really mattered in that state, and she came out ahead in Nevada. Whereas you have Florida Latinos saying, well, we reelected Governor Ron DeSantis with really high rates. We pulled in a lot of not just Cuban American voters, for instance, of Florida, but a lot of Central American voters as well, who typically used to vote for Democrats. Again, we're kind of these regionalisms. You have a lot of people claiming victory and also claiming some hurt on both sides. I think generally one of the reasons we can attribute to this is Spanish language 
at buying. There was a really concerted effort on both sides, I think, to reach Latino populations in different ways. I think some you could say were successful and some were not so much. For example, there was way more Senate ad buying on the Democratic side to translate Spanish ads, but not only put them in Spanish, but really make sure that they're unique to the Latino community. So they have the most unique Spanish language only ads compared to house candidates, which were just translating ads that they had in Spanish, sometimes not even that well, and not really enhancing Latino values, quote unquote, in those ads. Candidates who did that tend to fare less well than candidates in states where there was also a Senate candidate carrying the water there. And then finally, I think there was just a lot of campaigning on issues that were important to Americans of any race and ethnicity, economic, inflation, things like that. That was consistently one of the top priorities for Latinos, even alongside other concerns like healthcare, climate change, and guns, things like that. I think when the economy and inflation is your number one concern, Republicans definitely had stronger messaging throughout the midterm cycle. And I think some of the shift can definitely be attributed to that as well. We're seeing that it's clear that both parties still have a lot of work to do to win over Latino voters. What do you think Democrats and Republicans can do to better engage Latinos moving forward and to better address their concerns? Both sides that I've been talking to have been saying the same thing that people have been saying for years is just engage earlier. I think a lot of the problem stems from the Democratic Party taking some voters of color for granted and not necessarily engaging fully until there is a problem noticed by party consultants and things like that. And then on the other side, Republicans consultants are saying we haven't tried hard enough to get Latinos in early enough, but then also keep them there. For example, when Republicans can really hammer home on things like economy and inflation, but then when the economy and inflation gets better, then they lose all key tenant of their messaging. And so I was talking to one consultant who was saying Republicans need to do better getting out of their quote unquote traditional wheelhouse with Latinos because Latinos care about climate change, because we care about health care and abortion and guns and things like that and don't necessarily always fall in line with all the social issues that the Republican Party cares about. The party needs to do a better job of diversifying its own message and making sure that it can encompass Latino voters of all different beliefs, not just those who are really focused on immigration and restriction and gun rights. And then on the Democratic side, of course, making sure that they don't take for granted English-speaking Latinos. Spanish-speaking Latinos are actually super ahead for Democrats. Um, they have a really strong advantage for the Democratic Party. But English-speaking Latinos are only a few points on the Democratic side compared to Republicans. One way that the Democrats can continue to regain some of that trust with Hispanic voters is to continue their English language program as well and making sure they're understanding where Latinos are coming from and why they're switching over to the Republican side and ensuring that, that they can continue to be strong on issues like economy, inflation, job security, because that's really where a lot of Republicans are winning over everything. I know earlier we were talking about how the shift towards conservatism was a little marginal, but I noticed that the shift for Latino men versus Latino women was a lot larger. Do you have any idea why Latino men are shifting towards the Republican Party at a higher rate than women? It's actually been something that's been felt across the board among many different races, between Black men, Latino men, Asian men and white men that generally just getting more conservative on a whole. I think there's a few reasons for that. A lot of focus on social issues that may affect women more, particularly abortion and healthcare. Those may be seen as a driver of bringing women to the polls to support Democrats, for instance, in terms of rights getting taken away or gun rights could favor 
women towards Democrats more than others. I think it's part of a really interesting trend generally, just based on gender, how men are consistently inching to the right every single cycle for the past few months now. And part of the problem is, too, for Democrats, generally, they're seeing voters of color still as this giant monolith. It's just if you're Latino, if you're Black, if you're Asian, like you're just one kind of voter. Again, really not taking into account from these regionalisms, some of these differences between North and South, East and West Coast. Like you're going to have such differences in opinion based on your immigration status or what nationality you are. The gender gap to many Democrats really have to be cognizant of going into the future to make sure that they're not alienating men of color if they really want that voter base support while also making sure that they're gaining their base of women of color who are consistently more voting for the Democrats and Republicans. I think you really hit the nail on the head. Latinos being seen as a monolith is like a constant issue in any kind of conversation about voting patterns. Definitely both parties need to really be more curious and understand our community better. You can even see that in the ads too, right? Where you have an ad Spanish that kind of just says something with a generic accent or maybe has book Spanish almost styles versus you're campaigning for a house candidate in Texas. Like they're going to talk a little different than someone who was campaigning in Florida or in New York, making sure that both parties are hiring consultants and hiring firms that understand not only just Latinos as a larger speak Spanish or things like that, but just really understand like the colloquialisms or some of the ways people talk about things or phrasing. So in Texas, like they use a lot of Spanglish, right? Or they use like anglicized words in comparison to maybe Florida. Being able to incorporate that into your actual ad or into your mailers or into some of the issues you're talking about on the campaign trail, that can really make a difference to make sure that people understand that the candidates come off as authentic. In order to come off as authentic, your team really has to be authentic and do the work. Before we finalize here, is there anything else you want to share about anything you've noticed in your reporting about voters of color and the midterms? There are so many new expansions and restrictions heading into voting these days. And I think growing up, learning about different ways that community members have been disenfranchised or had rights given to them and things like that. I think it's a really important history to keep track of. I think the presidential election is really fascinating because midterms, right, we have this dynamic between Republicans and Democrats where, again, both sides are coming out claiming victory in different ways. I think a more solid measure of that performance, particularly with voters of color, will be with the 2024 elections and trying to track how both sides are taking their, quote, loss or win with voters of color will be really interesting to follow. This will be as clear a warning sign as we've ever gotten for either side to maintain their Latino support, in particular being the second largest voting bloc in the country now. And so seeing what they do with that and noticing how Latinos' power has really shifted in just the past four years, I think will be a super fascinating and I'm excited to cover it. Thank you for sharing. Jesus and Marisa give us a wonderful national look at what happened in the 2022 midterm elections. Our next guest, Maria Starr, will share her experience with an on-the-ground get-out-the-vote campaign. Maria Starr yeah. is a longtime LACLA leader and currently serves as president of the Greater Lansing, Michigan chapter. She's also a proud member of UAW Local 652 and recently retired from General Motors with over 30 years of service. Maria has long been involved in Get Out the Vote campaigns in Michigan, both as a poll watcher and through her local LACLA chapter. Maria, we're so excited to hear from you today and learn from you as well. Can you tell us about your local chapter's recent work and why you think it's important for LACLA to engage in political elections? We worked very hard this past political. I reached out to my members. I told them we need to get this stuff done. We work on the north side of Lansing 
And I felt the people in the whole city of Lansing should get the same information. We passed out a lot of information. We made sure we were available. We try to focus more on the young students to help us do these deliveries, these literature drops, because that way they'll educate them. I'll never forget this young kid asked me, why are we doing this? I told him that way people can read the information and make a decision who was going to work well for their family. To me, it's important for the Latinos to know more because I personally was not involved. I hated politics when I was young. And a lot of it is because I didn't understand it. I believed in my mom. Your mom is God. I remember I used to ask my mom if she voted and she said, no, only people that own homes vote. That was stuck in my head for years. And I remember I was 22 and I was working and it was an election. And I remember some guys coming around and say, hey, did you vote today? Did you vote today? And everybody said yes. And they asked me and I lied through my teeth. I said yes. And I'm looking around, man, these people are younger or my age and they already own homes and they're voting. I couldn't wait till I finally got to buy my home. When I did, I was in my early 30s. That's when I learned and I could have been voting since I was 18. So I feel if I share that information to my high school volunteers, they're going to be more aware of what's going on in the community. When I was their age, I had no idea. I had to help my mom a lot. She was a single parent. I made it a mission to myself to educate others and educate people, even my age, who didn't have that concept either. To me, it's important. We need to get more Latinos involved. We need to be inclusive in our area. I know your chapter has also been involved in some canvassing for the Michigan Proposal 3, the Right to Reproductive Freedom Initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? We were skeptical because we know some of the Latino folks, they're pro-life, and we wanted to respect that, but we wanted also to respect that we have a choice of what you want to do. That it's not mandatory that you need to have an abortion. It's whatever comes in your crisis, whatever comes in your family or your personal lives to make that decision to do what you want to do. As a matter of fact, the property, the, the reproductive justice that we work with Michigan Voices, I only had requested like maybe 3,000 flyers because I wasn't sure. We stationed ourselves at AFL-CIO and the other side of the room, there was a Prop 3 organization there. Every time we ran out, we went to them. We ended up getting 7,000. We ended up passing all that literature, seven, eight, nine. We had nine to 10,000 literature we passed out throughout Lansing. It gave them the pros and cons, but we also said, hey, you got to think of medical reasons. You got to think about maybe something badly happened or protect the mother. It's your choice what you want to do. You shouldn't have to feel guilty because you made a choice. We've noticed that the Greater Lansing chapter has done a really good job of engaging with the union retiree community in Michigan and has managed to get some incredible work in getting out the vote. Can you tell us some of the victories and challenges you faced in working with the union retiree community in Michigan? A lot of my members are retirees. And a lot of my volunteers are also retirees. And with their help, we're getting ready because they want to repeal the pension tax. Ten years ago, we were out there at the state capitol protesting Governor uh, Schneider because he was taxing our pension, our retirement. We already paid our taxes. That's our income for a living. But now we're getting ready. We're trying to get more educated about what's next because Governor Gretchen wants to repeal the tax, that pension tax. I'm ready for that. But the retirees are out there that help me. They share their personal information, what lives they went through. Some of them 
don't even want to think about it. They don't think about their health care. They think everything is down packed already. We got to remind them like, no, we still got to fight for this. Something else we've noticed about your chapter is that you've developed a working partnership with the local CLUE, which is the Coalition of Labor Union Women and APRI, the A. Philip Randolph Institute. We know how critical it is for us to come together as people of color and especially with Get Out the Vote campaigns. So this type of partnership is something we would love to see replicated in other chapters and in other organizations. How did this partnership come about and how have you worked together to collaborate and expand? It's funny because us three, Veronica Jansen, she's the clue president. Roberta Cannon is the API president. And then myself, us three, we got elected in this position at the same time. So when we started doing the Getting Out the Vote, we're just like, we got together, we called each other, we met at the union hall, and we divided. We got a city map, and we divided the city map by three. My area was the north side, APRI was central to the east side, and Flu was the south and southwest side. Together, we always met and strategized what information we need to pass out, how many people we need to get, trying to figure out a budget for us. So we did all of that, and that's how we stayed connected because we felt that not one area, but all areas should get the same information of the literature. Recently, last year, the API president, she stepped down. The same is happening with Clue. I reached out and called them and asked them if they want to do this, and Roberta did from APRI did. Veronica was unavailable, but she said she can help. Some of the volunteers were ready to help too. And we have 40 precincts. We hit every precinct. And we always start out with the low voter turnout. We started out with those throughout the city. And then after that, we started reaching out to the rest. I was very happy. The kids were great. They were great. They worked every day, every weekend. They didn't even hesitate. That worked out really good for us. And that we've been doing it ever since. We have a history here. Oh. Thank you so much for sharing, Maria. Today's moraleja is that el voto latino es complicado. Pero we have learned that when labor invests in communities of color early in the process, those communities will come out and vote in the interests of labor. The time to start preparing for the 2024 election is now. We need labor to invest early in our communities. But equally as important, we must continue to educate nuestras familias, amigos, and many more about the importance of voting and speak out against misinformation wherever we see it. We encourage all listeners to start having those conversations and to challenge labor to make this critical investment. Thank you for listening to El Desvio, Many Roads, One Destination. Our podcast explores the many ways that we activists and trade unionists try to get to the destination of social and economic justice. LACLA's El Desvio podcast is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, the voice of working people. To learn more about issues that affect workers, visit laborradionetwork.org. This podcast was made possible by the support of the AFL-CIO and the Si Podemos Fund, LACLA's national C4 organization. 